Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for waiting patiently for me to come on. Um, before I begin, I need to pray. So, Father God, we thank you so much for just being full time in our life. We ask that you please allow us to receive your word today. Let us be able to apply your word into our experiences and our circumstances, situations in life. Let us be able to reflect on the world um, from the lens of your biblical word. Lord God, allow us to take heed to your word and what you give us. Um, but most importantly, God, please allow your will to be done in our life. We just ask that you keep our hearts softened and melted for you, God. We want you to just remove all of the things that's inside of us that displeases you, that is disappointing to you, and um, replace it with those things that are pleasing to you and can fulfill your plan, will, and purpose in our life, God. We also want to be able to have conviction in our heart that will allow us to turn to have repentance for things that is displeasing to you. So whatever we're doing in our lives, God, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is, God, allow us to have convi conviction in our heart that will lead us to repentance conviction that leads us to repentance to you god and so whatever that is god allow our hearts not to continue on in those things that are displeasing to you or disobedience to you god so make sure that our hearts get convicted and allow us to have repentance to you and um to completely turn away from those things god so we ask that you please continue to lead us in the path of righteousness allowing us to be able to not be conformed to this world but transformed by the renewing of our mind god we also ask that you just please allow your words to resonate in our heart god just uproot all the things and pluck out the things in us that you know you didn't put in our hearts and minds god allow all the things that was conformed to this world let it be uprooted out of us god and replace it with those things that are satisfying to you and not just um have the ability to fulfill and satisfy your plan will and purpose but god we want to be able to over exceed the goals that you have for us and the expectations and and we know that you know god we have all fallen short of your glory but by your grace we are saved um and so god we thank you for giving us the ability to share in the grace that you give us god we we appreciate you thank you for redirecting our steps so whenever we mess up god just redirect our path so that we can continue to walk in righteousness no matter what that may be um, no matter what we need to shift in our lives, God, let it be shifted, orchestrate what needs to be orchestrated in our life so that we can walk and live a life of abundance, Lord God. So we just thank you right now that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Allow us to be obedient to the voice of your Holy Spirit. Let us follow you. So God, we ask that you allow us to leap in the in the spirit realm with the Holy Spirit, God, and allow us to understand um, what what the Holy Spirit is, is leading us too. Um, so God, I just ask that you please uh, lead me in this discussion. Um, thank you, Holy Spirit, for uh, filling me up. And I ask that you allow me to be, um, allow me not to forget anything that I need to discuss tonight, but make sure that it's um, 
audience appropriate so I want to stay on topic or and make sure that I'm delivering the right message and so God let me minister grace to those that need to hear it and let me also be able to minister that which is edifying to those that are in despair and hopelessness God and let us be able to provide empowerment tonight Lord so that um each person can have success and thrive Lord God we're using your word to sustain us so we thank you right now in advance for everything that you're doing for us god we also ask that you continue to um remove obstacles and barriers out of our path and, and just let us find glory in every situation let us find the glory of you in every situation and circumstance father god your glory reveal your glory to us reveal the motives of everyone that we encounter so that you know no man shall deceive us no one shall deceive us because we have the mind of christ and so therefore no weapon formed against us shall prosper god you said whatever we bind on earth is bound in heaven and whatever we loose on earth is loose in heaven and so god we thank you that your plan will and purpose be fulfilled and um most importantly god we just want to be able to over exceed your plan will and purpose in our life in the name of jesus christ it is sealed in your atonement blood amen hey hey everybody thank you all so much for joining me tonight on um laws life and health let's talk about it so i do apologize about the little delay that i had um I was honestly trying to put together the podcast for tonight and go over some of the key points. Um, and then I was praying too, like prior a little bit prior to um starting on the blog. So I guess this this actual topic here, the future of ex-offenders and combating recidivism, I guess it's somewhat like a sensitive subject because I've seen so many people that I've grew, grown up with in and out of prison um, where I know actual individuals where they have been, you know, um, misperceived, like people have this misinterpretation that all criminals are guilty. And uh, many criminals that go to jail are perceived as a criminal, but a lot of them are not right they just don't have the funds to be able to accommodate them um to be able to have a lawyer right to represent them on the crime that they were accused of so before i even get into all of that there are a lot of different things that i'm going to be talking about on this podcast so i just want to make sure that everyone know up front that this podcast and blog is for mature audiences only okay that means that, you know, if you are a parent and you like for your children to be able to chime in, you should make sure that you're explaining this in detail to them. Um, so I, I just want to make sure that this this podcast itself and blog is going to be for mature audiences only. So I may be talking about some subjects that may be really sensitive to some and some subjects that may be, you know, OK as it pertains to recidivism and ex-offenders. So this is a very sensitive subject for many people, okay? Some people have um, had to combat employment, addiction, mental illness, including um, housing discrimination. They have, have had to endure public perception of them. There are so many different things that 
impacted individuals have had to endure in order to be able to overcome this negative perception about some of the um, allegations that has been brought against them. And many times, some people, they do go to jail because they have committed the crime. But because they have committed the crime, does that really mean that they should have a lifetime condemnation after they have served their sentence? Um, many times when an impacted individual is released from jail, they have to combat society's stigma against them. So that negative stigma of, you know, people perceiving them as a, a criminal forever, for life. So they have a lifetime condemnation, a lifetime sentence from society, right? Um, even though they have served their time, they're still condemned after being released from jail. And so how do we combat some of these issues? Well, I want to talk about several different things today. Um, I have a couple vid videos that I'm going to play. I also have an article that I wanted to talk about. And I also wanted to talk about some biblical um, perspectives as it pertains to um, prisons and jails, right? So... This scripture, if, if you can go to your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So I kind of want to go over this and look at the different translations of 1 Peter 2 and 16. So that was the NIV version. The New Living Translation says, For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Right? I, I kind of like the New Living Translation on that. If we look at the New, um, the I'm sorry, the English Standard Version says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I like that one too. Um, the King James Bible says, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Okay. Um, the Amplified Bible says, live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover or pretext for evil, but use it and live as bond servants of God. So what I wanted to look at here is the word um, servants, right? But it's the servants of God. So let's look at the word servants and let's better define what this term means. So um, before I look at the Strong's Concordance, I just want to give you all a, a brief history of what the Strong's Concordance is, right? So the Strong's Concordance is actually, hold on a second, one moment, you all. So the Strong's Concordance actually allows us to have the translation written out in English of the entire Holy Bible. So you have the Holy Bible is comprised of two Testaments. One is the Old Testament that is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. Okay. 
And so the first five books of the Bible, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that is considered the Torah or the law, right? That is where we're going to find God's law, right? That he demanded and required for his servants. Um, in the New Testament, we see that the four gospels is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we can go there to check out the life of Jesus and everything about Jesus Christ, right? So Jesus, he was 100% man and also 100% God. So God manifested himself into the flesh just to show us that he can become just as low as the angels, right? And become like us and sin not because he was actually a, a man that did not sin. So even though Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man, he never used his godly powers to defend himself, right? He only used his godly powers to provide healing to the sick and to raise the dead and to show people that he was God. He never actually defended himself, even when he was beaten prior to him being crucified, right? So when Jesus was crucified, um, he was actually crucified. It was authorized by the Roman Catholics, right? And the Jews, who were the religious Pharisees and Sadducees, they were the ones who executed and crucified Jesus, right? But this was already prophesied, right? Um, so when Jesus died, he resurrected after the third day. And when he resurrected, he was on earth for 40 days. He ministered light to hundreds of people, including his disciples. Okay. Um, after the 40 days, we see that Jesus ascended into heaven. Okay. 10 days later, he sent the Holy Spirit down. So the Holy Spirit descended upon his apostles, his disciples. And that happened 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven. So that is considered the day of Pentecost because it's 40 days. Jesus was on earth after his resurrection. 10 days later, he sent us the Holy spirit. So that's the number 50 represents the day of Pentecost. So in order to understand all of this and to put it into um, perspective, you have to understand that God became human and sin not. So the Holy Spirit, once the Holy Spirit descended on earth and upon his disciples, guess what? Now, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is living on the inside of them. So that same spirit we have access to and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. So to understand the Bible you you really will need to have access to the holy spirit okay now i'm not about to be um a religious pharisee or sadducee okay and i'm not going to get into the context of well what scripture is that in and, and where can you find this i'm going to let you know that in order to understand the god's word you need to have access to the holy spirit there are people in this world that are deceived and they are deceived because their eyes are unable to perceive. Their ears are blocked so they don't understand. 
So they their perception has a veil and their ears are blocked from understanding God's word. So in order to understand God's word, you want to have access to the Holy Spirit. The way to have access to the Holy Spirit is you need to be able to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died on the cross and he resurrected, right? He died on the cross and was crucified and resurrected. You acknowledge these things and God will allow you to receive salvation. But salvation is the beginning step. It needs to be beyond that. So we need to be able to study, not just listen to what people tell us, right? <laughs> the way we understand God is by reading his word and understanding what God wants us to do. So what we can understand who God is, not by what people just say. Now, some people are gifted and they have the Holy Spirit. So yes. They are being led by God to speak to you. So, of course, I wouldn't be talking about those individuals. I'm talking about your reliance on information. Your reliance on information should be in God's word. Okay? We are all human, which means that we come with subjective values, meaning that they could be biased, right? And those biased values could also be inaccurate. So you want to make sure that you're studying God's word in a way where you can interpret his word. And so the way we interpret God's word is um, through the Strong's Concordance, right? So um, if you didn't grow up speaking Hebrew or Greek, you are not going to be able to, like, um, it's not your native language. So you're going to have to get it through, get it translated. So the way it's translated in the Bible is through the Strong's Concordance. So you could search in different sections on the internet with different um, uh, Strong's Concordance that how they demystify the word of God and they break it down from Hebrew, right, on to Greek. So I want to go to um, this Hebrew word um, is Strong's number 5650. Which means in bed, e bed, slave servant. And what it means is slave servant of household. Okay. And so we are a part of God's household. So when we look at First Peter 2.16, it says, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So a slave and a servant is the same. Now, I'm not going to get into the, the depths of slaves, okay? Because I already done that on a different podcast. I talked about debt slavery and how debt slavery um, was in the Bible. So it's it was different from American Okay, I'm sorry about that. My, my sister was calling me. I, I tell everybody I do my podcast at 7. So, um, okay. So, I just didn't want the volume to get cut off because I noticed that when I'm, when I'm on the podcast and my phone is ringing, it kind of mutes the sound out. So, that's fine, okay? All right, so now... Um, so God wants us to live like we are members of his household. We are going to give God 
everything okay but i want to look at a different um different strong's accordance too because that was from bible hub that i looked up i kind of like to see different reflections on it so let's look up servant here and since it's in um now when you type in the word servant it'll tell you exactly how many times the word servant was mentioned in the bible and so the word servant is mentioned 460 times in the bible according to strong's concordance.org it has 19 different meanings so for instance if we were going to look up the word perfect right the word perfect actually has 94 different meanings i'm sorry it has 90 different um verses and 23 different meanings but if you look at the word perfect in the dictionary it has nine different meanings but the word perfect according to hebrew means tam which is what it means to be mature in 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 action so you are mature right and that's the word perfect but if you're looking at the word perfect in um, the dictionary, that's going to have a different meaning. So when you're understanding and looking at God's word, you want to make sure that you're looking at God's word in a way where you're not comparing it to no dictionary. Right. So Tam is perfect, which is Strong's number eight, five, three, five, which means to be which means to be mature in thought and action, mature in thought and action. Okay. It doesn't mean what the dictionary says, like without flaw, right? So now we can understand that the word perfect, according to the Bible, is saying that we need to be mature. That's why the Bible says you to be perfect, even as my father in heaven is perfect. God is saying you should be mature in thought and action. That's what God is saying. Okay, so now just moving on um, and looking at the word servant here. So the word servant is actually mentioned in 460 different Bible verses, approximately. It has about 19 different lexicon words. And so we see that the word, um, let's, I'm going to go exactly to the scripture that we are on, which is, um, first Peter, first Peter two sixteen. So when you're looking at a word, in um, Strong's Accordance, you can go directly to that scripture. It will take you there, okay? And when you go there, see, you should, it'll, it'll give you the meaning of the word from that verse. Because just because the word perfect is mentioned in one verse may not mean the same thing in another verse. That Which is why the word perfect has 23 different meanings. And the word servant has 19 different meanings right so that's the way that we understand the word okay now i want to i need to now i need to look for first peter okay but they don't look like that they have it here so i'm just gonna go by this um strong's number 5650 which is ebed it means bondage bondman servants that's it so we are in bondage. We're connected to God. We want to be chained to God. Like so attached to God. Well, we're inseparable. I'm inseparable with God. I'm attached to God. I'm chained to God. God is my stronghold. And so that's how we're going to look at God.
That's what this scripture is reflecting us to understand. Live as free people, but not do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So God is saying, like, look, you can you can live life being creative, being blessed, enjoying yourself, right? But just don't do it to do evil, right? Do it in a way where you are attached to God. You know, like if you are married. You are a married person. You're going to respect your wife when you're around other women. You're going to respect your wife because you are a married man. In the same way, a wife is going to respect her husband when she's around other males. Right? Because it's just the code of ethics in marriage. So in the same way, when you're out here living life free, we're going to still respect God in a way not to do evil. That's what it's saying. So I want to talk about um, recidivism for a moment. Um, so according to the Merriam dictionary, recidivism can be best defined as a French word that means to relapse into sin or crime, right? It refers to a tendency to go back to previous conditions or modes of behavior, specifically criminal behavior. So that's what recidivism is. It people relapse, like some people relapse on addiction. Right. They may be addicted to alcohol. Some people are addicted to drugs. They relapsing on these things. So they're going to go back to the same condition. So if somebody is a is a thief, they go and then they go to jail. They, they get out. The chances of them going back to jail is extremely high. Right. Um, because that's a relapse. So how do we combat the relapse of criminal activity? How do we how do we combat and fight? the issues of people constantly going back repeating crimes right um there is so much information that i have on recidivism that i do not have on this blog yet okay this is going to take a long time i have collected a lot of research on this um so when i when i initially had uh registered for my phd program i was actually going to be focusing on ex-offenders being able to be rehabilitated back into society by combating some recidivism so i changed that because god influenced my dissertation topic god had a lot to do with that so um through prayer and supplication god really did influence my ability to change it um but god had told me he said someone else is working on that that those issues are going to get resolved but so now let's let's look at this. We see that it's a tendency to go back and forth to some of the same conditions. It's kind of like you were in a bad relationship, but you just keep going back to the same bad relationship over and over and over again. And so that's somewhat similar to having cognitive dissonance, right? People have a clash of ideas. You're like, okay, I love this person, but no, I don't want to deal with that. But then you go back. Right? Why are you going back? You you're clashing your thoughts of rationale with irrational thinking, right? Because you know that that person is unhealthy for your lifestyle, but yet you still go back to them, right? So everyone has experienced some form of cognitive dissonance, whether it be um, a clash of idea of an investment. Maybe you chose to invest a lot of money into one particular product or service and now you've lost your money 
But prior to you losing your money, you're like, okay, I'm going to pull out. No, I'm going to keep my money in. I'm going to take some out. I'm going to change my stop loss. You know, you having these clash of ideas. So I know that many times it's so difficult for us to admit our mistakes. It is. It, it is. But not for me. Um, because I believe that I need to take accountability. And I've noticed that through my mistakes, it have allowed me to have resiliency. And I would say like recently, right? I almost really made a horrible mistake with like making a commitment with someone that I just know isn't appropriate for my lifestyle. And so God really intervened and I prayed and God intervened. And so at that moment, I was praying like in the midst of me, you know, making a mistake. I'm praying. I say, God, please intervene for me. I don't want to make another long term mistake. So we have these short term mistakes and then we all have long term mistakes. And so like what I've noticed is when I'm transparent about when I'm making a mistake, I, I put everything on the table. Okay. I feel that in order for me to improve, I need to be more empathetic when someone is speaking about topics that I may not agree with. So I need to have intentional listening, right? I don't want to cut nobody off when they're talking to me about something or any idea that I may oppose. So that's something that I need to work on, right? These are things that I openly admit that I'm trying to change. Another thing is sometimes I may have so much compassion on people that I'm just like, okay, well, you know, this is my last, but I'm going to help you out anyway. And so sometimes helping others could hurt me in the process of me making sure that I'm okay. So I need to sometimes like think of myself instead of always putting others before me, right? I also have an issue with avoidance. So sometimes I have conversations with people and they may ask me a question and I'll answer the question, but not to their expectations, but they don't notice that I'm avoiding the question, right? And so that's something that I really want to work on. So when I think about all the things that I need to work on, I can't admit these things because in order for me to improve and grow, I need to acknowledge and take ownership and accountability of areas that I need to improve. So now it's like, okay, how am I doing that? Like sometimes I find myself being loud. Like, am I, <laughs> why am is my voice so loud? Like my tone is like elevated. You know, but that's just the way I've always talked. So I want to like talk at a level that's a normal pace. So I want to try to improve in that area, right? Um, so it's a lot of different things that I would like to improve. But what I noticed is when some people are not as transparent about their mistakes and things that they need to improve, they'll just listen to mine. And then be like, yes, yes, you do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, okay, so now let's reflect on yours.
it's like blank, right? So the point of the matter is, is that many times no one wants to talk about the things that they need to improve. You, it, it requires you to have a certain level of maturity in order for you to discuss things that you need to improve. Areas where you have messed up, where you need to go back and reevaluate, right? So for instance, God is telling, God told me, look, this is, this is what you can talk about. How have your mistakes allowed you to be resilient? Because I, I I talk about God. I talk to God about my mistakes. And it's like, God, ooh. Okay, well, I did. I messed up. And, you know, I, I shouldn't have said that to her like that. You know, I could have been, I could have been more, you know, I could have said that in a softer tone. Or I could have used a different word than saying irresponsible. I could have just said you could have, you know, reevaluated your decision instead of me saying irresponsible. So what language am I using? Right. The reason why I'm talking about this is because we need to start embracing our mistakes and allow our mistakes teach us resiliency. Because in order for you to be resilient and to be your best self, you need to be able to identify the problems that's in your life. How have you contributed to these problems? Scapegoating is blaming others. Okay, let's look at the psychological perspective of blaming others. Scapegoating. See, I didn't know I was going to be talking about this, but thank you, Holy Spirit. Um, Thank you, Holy Spirit. So let's look at scapegoating, for instance. I want to, um, this is an article from Psychology Today. It talks about the psychology of scapegoating. Is the time right for a new wave of scapegoating? So a person's, it says, the, a person's ego defense sort of displaces them in a role of escape, scapegoating. So when they are uncomfortable or they have, uh, uh, uncomfortable feelings of anger and frustration, envy or guilt, shame, insecurity. Um, they need to be redirected from somebody, the, or they become vulnerable with it within with the person or within a group. People scapegoat. They basically blame others and affirm their self righteous indignations. Like, oh no. Uh, you know, it's okay. Like if I, if somebody asks, like, for instance, I was talking to somebody today and another person asked them to leave their house. And so they're like, well, I don't have, I, their house is not that important. I can go anywhere. You know, I can go here. I can go there. I have family everywhere. Okay. But it isn't the point that you can go anywhere. The point of the matter is, is just respect the space of someone else's. If they want you to leave, just leave. You don't have to argue or debate about it, right? Oh, well, what they what do they think? It's they they sitting up here doing this and they're doing that. So so we're not gonna blame their feelings about you and the way that they treating you. We just you just have to just pay attention 
and don't imply the wrong thing. Take accountability and ownership. We're not going to discredit your contribution to your problems. So how did I contribute to my problems? Well, I mean, I just kept making the same mistake over and over again. You know, thinking that, well, I, I like this person. But really is it, it really wasn't about liking them. Maybe it was just the the sexual encounter at the time and me thinking secular, right? It isn't about love. It isn't about longevity. It's just about the encounter of fulfilling my desires. But instead of me focusing on the desires of what God wants for me and God's plans for me and his purpose, I was focusing on the desires of lust and sex. So that wasn't congruent to what God really wanted. So the, the main point is, is this. We make decisions that isn't a part of God's plan, will, and purpose all the time. And so we have to be able to understand the forgiveness levels that we have with ourselves and others. That's the next thing. So understanding forgiveness, understanding the forgiveness levels, right? So do you forgive yourself? Do you forgive other people? So I, I want to dive deep into this. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about forgiveness for a moment, and then I want to I want to uh, look at this video. Okay. Excuse me. Okay, here we go. Hold on one second. It's a couple a couple different things I wanted to pull up here. One second. Okay. Okay, here we go. So I know I I talked about this scripture a bunch of times. I kind of want to use a different one. Okay, I'm not I'm going to use the one that I normally use. Um, okay, so let's go to Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Romans 12 and 19. And I need to put this on the blog too. I, I gotta remember to do that. Romans 12 and 19. Okay. It says, Do not take revenge. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. See, what I noticed about this is that thinking about the Gospels, right, which is the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus never defended himself, right? Even when he was standing in front of Pontius uh, Pilate, he didn't say, 
he because he he tried to say well i have the power <coughs> he had the power to stop what was about to take place you know jesus didn't defend himself so if we look at, um, I want to look at the other translations, Romans 12 and 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath for it is written is mine to avenge. I will repay says the Lord. And so when I was praying today about forgiveness, God has said, well, how do you like, how do you think you should explain it? Because, see, when you talk to God, you actually have a conversation with the Lord. You get on your knees and you just pray. Just pray to God and talk to God. Like, So I normally say, well, God, I, I want to talk about um, some of the major issues surrounding the recidivism. What do you think that that should be? And then God will talk to me about myself and how I've overcome things and my testimony. And so that's what I'm sharing with you all. Okay? And so, for instance... All right, so I have had so many things happen. I don't even know where to begin. But when it comes to unforgiveness, let me explain this. So I can just talk about, um, let's talk about, um, I'm trying to see. Okay. See, I, I just don't want to put nobody's name out there because if I, I... Okay, so I have a relative who I have always have loaned money to. I've even gotten their car fixed. They pay for their transmission to be replaced. Um, And that person literally have never done anything for me without me paying them. Okay. But they continue to ask me to do this and do certain things and help them do this and help them get property. I've helped this person do a lot of stuff, okay? And they never want to pay me. They'll say, okay, I'll pay you to do this and I'll pay you to do that. But now when the time comes that me not having a contract or anything, it's like, okay, well, I'll get around to paying you when I can. This same person I asked to sign a contract on the um, property that I wanted and I wanted them to uh, do roofing for me, like at least up to like $40,000 worth of free work on the roof um, or plumbing job. So that would have been one of the tasks that I would need them to do um, free of compensation. Cause we're talking about a journeyman, someone who's certified in electricity, also plumbing, someone that, someone that is in my, in my family that is a very, um smart individual when it comes to construction and anything that has to do with the home okay and so they never wanted to like pay me for anything as if you know like i don't i i actually have my own immediate family my children that i have to take care of but they've always kind of like made it seem like oh well you you have the wisdom and knowledge so you might as well do this you're you're obligated to help your family we're your family. So another thing, I had another person um, where I have given a house to. I have um, given a car to. I bought their first, um, their laptop for, to go to college. Um, I basically invested in them. 
I've invested in their future, right? I supported their, you know, their journey through life, you know, and um, th that person, like, I never, ever, ever always says that I don't do nothing. I, I, you ain't do this and you don't do that, but I've done more overly exceedingly more than what you've ever done for me. And so, uh, there's another person who, I mean, I, I mean, I could, the list was just keep going on and on and on. Okay. <laughs> but the point of the matter is, is that I don't walk around in unforgiveness because I love them. And if they needed help with something again, I, I probably would help them again. Um, it isn't the point that, you know, like, yes, I, you can feel used in some areas, but I feel like God is my defense. I literally don't worry about too much of anything because God has, you know, really shaped my heart not to walk in unforgiveness. I don't have unforgiveness in my heart for anybody. My conscience is clear. Right. And so you when you can sleep good at night, knowing that your conscience is clear and you don't have unforgiveness. I mean, I used to like well, I want the best for my ex-husband forever. I mean, I've come to the point where hold on one second, please. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Okay, so so what I was saying um specifically was that you know we we just have to help people and that's it. We were put on this earth to help each other. To believe in God and to help each other. And so what that tells me is like, well, God been shown that to me. And so we have to all understand that God wants us to be delivered and set free. You can't be, you can't have freedom is if, if you're sitting here thinking that the next person is going to do what the last person did, or you think that the, your current situation is so much like your last one that you can't move on. It, you'll continue to repeat cycles until you learn. And so what, what happened was, is that, yes, I was repeating cycles because I wasn't learning and God was telling me, look, I have something better for you. Sometimes we don't know when to let go of things. Which is why I'm not too quick to get into um, a dating relationship. You know, I'm not because when I'm in a marriage, I'm in that relationship for a long time that's forever it's like it i don't never want to give up so you know it's so important to understand that when god shows you something that you learn from it so we have to get in the habit of asking god what are you trying to show me in this situation just because you went through something in your past doesn't equate to it happening again to you 
And the only way it won't happen again is if you quit making the people who you meet responsible for for the people in your past. So, like, I'll get into the habit. I really, really don't like talking about the negative things. Um, but I will talk about the negative things to show how I overcame. Because you need negative. Um, you need negativity that you have overcome in order to, to, to in order to allow you to see where you've progressed. So the negative things that you endured in your life, it shows you the progress that you've made. So negative things is a learning process. It teaches you what not to do, what not to go through, how to overcome. So we don't need to take revenge. All we need to do is understand when you don't defend yourself, God defends you. And so that's what I learned. I don't have to get mad. I don't have to get loud. I don't have to say, oh, I did this for you. And I did that. I don't do that. It's no reason for me to. You know why? Because God is my defense. God know what happened. So when someone is telling me something, I just look at them and I be like, you know, you and I both know what the truth is. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't really waste my time to debate about certain things. It's no point of me why elevate yourself into something that you don't need to be elevating in it's meaningless so today i was talking to god about the things that you know like okay so that when i pray this is what god told me god said that you know some people think that you don't listen and they also believe that um you just know everything right <laughs> And I was like, yeah, God, I you said that to me before. And so God was like, you know, so how does that make you feel? And I was like, well, God, I, I just think really that people, they should understand that we should not continue to waste our time on things that are ineffective. So if I am an investor, just say I want to support ideas of philanthropy and giving like benevolence i love giving right so am i gonna go in a network of people who have no contribution to benevolence and philanthropy why would i take ideas outside of the scope of what my goal is so god i said god you know some people spend their entire lives just trying to figure out one main point it took it took the it's a god's children 40 years to get to the promised land when it was supposed to take them 10 days it took them 40 years to figure that out so i said god you know i don't want to be spending my time in places where it's not meaningful <laughs> so god I would love for you to position me in a, in a space where it is going to be meaningful and not meaningless. Because I love being coached. I actually, God is my number one counselor. Okay. 
I see a counselor every week, every single week where I talk about every single thing that's going on in school. Okay. I also have friends that we coach each other. So I love that mentor personality. Um, I love how a mentor can come in and, and look at things from a different lens than you. It allows me to be more transparent. Thus, it improves me um, understanding of how to improve in areas I need to improve in. Thus, it creates more resilience for me. So having mentors, having other people else on the outside looking in, okay, well, you, well, they think you know everything. Okay, I understand. They think I know everything. Now, what else do they feel? Well, they don't think that you want to listen to the experts. Okay, why do they feel that way? You know, it's like, Okay, so now I have to sit back and I need to reflect on myself and say, okay, well, they think I know everything. <laughs> okay, obviously I don't because this is the reason why I study so much every single day um, and I read everything. And so I don't know everything because I read everything. So I'm still learning. I have a curious mind. The problem is, is that some people that consider themselves to be experts are indeed experts but they have the inability to be impartial they don't allow other perspectives to come in and and influence them like in order for you to communicate with someone you need to listen to their perspective don't assume that my intent is this don't assume that that person's intent was that assumptions never get anybody anywhere okay it only impacts your co-perception which is your conscious right <laughs> so you're allowing your co-perception of someone to impact your conscious why are you doing that if you're perceiving things from the right perspective you are going to allow the voice of any opposing idea to, you know, is it, going to be receptive. So I, I just ask God, you know, God, I don't want to, I don't want to spend time in space where it isn't meaningful, right? If I'm, I volunteer also, I've been volunteering for some months now and I volunteer for people that have suicidal ideation. And also crisis. And so the thing is, is that, you know, we have to think about how we can give back. It isn't about all, well, we have this and I, I want more. I want more of this and more and more and more. How can you give? How can you contribute? It's all about contribution. So if you're unable to contribute to a person's goal, why would you be needed in that space? Why would you be needed in that conversation? Why would I want you as a mentor for me when you don't relate to even the voice of the other? I love a hearing. I love hearing opposing ideas. I love the voice of opposition. It creates a great atmosphere to talk about, you know, things that are, um, 
you know, uh, just it, it just creates an atmosphere where you can create a brave space to talk in. So, for instance, I don't like um, code switching, right? Code switching is speaking someone else's pronunciation and also speaking at their language, right? Using words that they use, right? So, if someone speaks Ebonics, you're going to speak Ebonic. If someone speaks proper grammar, you're going to speak proper grammar, so um, depending on your audience, you're going to speak to your audience and you're going to code switch based upon that. I think it's unauthentic. I'm not being my authentic self. So I'm not going to code switch. I don't believe in that. I'm authentic. So if you disagree with that, I don't know what to say. You know, that's fine. You can have your position. I, I support your ideology and I, I can see why it could be beneficial, right? So I just want to say that it's, it's, it's important for us to be able to understand that we need to communicate with people and be consistent in our communication. People like when you're authentic. They like when you can be yourself. I'm going to be myself, okay? So... Moving on here, God is saying, do not take revenge. My dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So whatever you're going through in your life, you don't have to defend yourself. Give it to God and say, God, you knew what happened. You know what happened. I asked for you to defend me. You defend me, God. I don't, I don't want to argue. So give it to God. That's it. And, and also understand that when people are doing things, many times when there is a norm, right? For instance, somebody might curse a lot. They use profanity in every other word. That's their norm. It's their norm not to clean up. Because that's the way that they was raised. It's a norm not to have their own house. That's their norm. These are their facts. They're not may not be your facts, but because they're not your facts doesn't mean it is not their facts. People are who they are. You just <laughs> you either deal with it, pray about it, or you don't deal with it. But to say that someone's story isn't valid because it doesn't make sense to you makes you incorrect. So a person's story is their story to tell. A person's behavior is their cultural norm. So if you speak proper grammar, that is your cultural norm. If you speak Ebonics, that is your cultural norm. Is one right or is one wrong? 
Well, why does one have to be right or wrong? It's just language. Language cannot measure intelligence levels. English is a language like any other language. So just because you can define a word here and there, that, that doesn't measure your intelligent level. English cannot measure intelligence. Now, Mensa can measure your, your IQ. There are a lot of different survey tools that measures IQ, okay? But going back to the, to the main topic is, is that just because you have a belief that's different from someone else doesn't mean that their belief is wrong. Recently, I just had someone challenge one of my ideas about them actually. Um, so I was having a conversation with someone about when people don't respond to things, it's still a response. Your silence is a response. Your inability to do nothing is a response. Your lack of, of involvement is a response. Your lack of support is a response. So all of those things is still a response. So the way that you act impacts those around you the language you use the pronunciation you use when most people say your accent you sound country oh you so proper your silence is a response that impacts others So let's move forward. Just understand that Romans 12 and 19, God is saying, look, he's basically saying, let him defend you. When people are wrong, they don't, nobody wants to acknowledge anything. They don't even want to acknowledge if they forgot to pay a bill. They will hide that from their spouse. Oh, I forgot to pay the car. No, why would you do that? You know, <laughs> people, they do not like acknowledging mistakes. And so acknowledging your mistakes leads to resiliency. When people are wrong, when people are deceived, they don't know that they are deceived. How would a deceived person know that they're deceived? There are so many women that stay in abusive relationships because they believe that that person loves them. There are so many men that stay in abusive relationships with women because they believe that that woman loves them. Men and women are both abused. The stigma surrounding men getting abused is like, really benign but there is a large number of men that are abused by women 
So when we think about all of these things, we really should be like taking heed to the fact that God is saying, look, they are deceived. If they won't acknowledge their own mistakes enough to change, what makes you think that you have the power to be God in their life? What makes you think that you have the power to show them where they messing up at? So when they mess up, God, God uses his children to speak. And that's just about it. And we are supposed to speak and make our prayer and supplication to God. Because God will intervene. God intervenes. So if you speak Ebonics and someone else speaks proper grammar and, you know, they get the job over your Ebonics speaking language, you know, give it to God. It doesn't make you less suitable for the position. Were you skilled at it? Do you have certificates? Did you, you get the interview so you're qualified? I had a job call me one time. They literally sent me an email and said, they love my skills. It matches everything that they're looking for. And then the, the guy tells me, he says, oh yeah, well, you know, your skills doesn't match everything that we're looking for. And I was like, okay, thank you. That's fine. But I, I couldn't help but to think, why did you call me in the first place? Didn't you read my resume? Like I had an interview with you and then I had another interview. What What is the issue here? You know, and it's like, look, I, I'm not going to change my pronunciation for anybody. But I will read more books. And so when we're having a conversation about certain topics, I can definitely have intellectual conversations and spiritual conversations about God. Pertaining to, you know, a large number of different subjects. So, you know, we just have to let God work in the lives of people that are deceived and realize that God is going to help them. But it's their choice to change. When people are forced to change, they usually don't. It is short-lived. It doesn't last that long. They have to change on their own. And God influences them. God is God. Is God okay? Our limitations, you know, yes, we, we are like God, but we are not God. We are not omnipresent. God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere all at once. Okay, so I want to share um, this video where it talks about, this is Andrew Lockie. He talks about how prisons were being built based upon third graders' um, test scores. So they project how many prisons need to be built in the future based upon third graders' test scores in school. And so 
it when you look at this when you listen to this video it may you know it may um bother you some right but it's important to understand the way the world around us is working so if we see that just a simple subject such as language and pronunciation is something that separates people then we know that there has been a serious problem happening in america because pronunciation is different depending on where you grew up where you lived but it doesn't measure your skill set your pronunciation and accent doesn't tell a person your academic level of achievement it doesn't dictate your certificates and your level of understanding what needs to be completed in your job description so here's another issue um andrew Lockie is going to address and um so i'm not going to play the whole video but i just do want to reflect after he's done so if you have any questions please go ahead and put them in the chat and i'll see them there and i'll respond after the video okay I'm going to make a bold statement and say that doing a TEDx talk is going to be the most transformative and uplifting experience of your life and your business. Expect to find 
15 years from now. So they looked back and they examined all of the data they could. They, they looked at data from a few years ago, they looked at data from 35 years ago, and they stumbled upon the secret sauce. And it wasn't what they expected. They figured to house the people that were going to be incarcerated in the future. They needed to understand what the level of literacy was in their grade three students. When they figured out what that, what that level was in their grade three students, they could predict with some near certainty the size of the prison they were going to need 15 years later. Okay, so I'm going to end it right there. And then you all could go back and look at the video, but that video is 11 minutes long. Um, so a couple things that he said. We're going to look. They, they knew that they needed a certain amount of prisons to be built. They knew how many prisons they wanted to get built, but they needed to look at the, the connection with why individuals were incarcerated. So what they found was the secret sauce and the secret sauce was their third grade literacy levels, right? So the third grade literacy levels could determine just how many future incarcerated individuals it would be based upon their third grade test scores. So 15 years into the future, they could anticipate how many people would go to jail based upon the third grade level literacy. Now, we're talking about the future of philanthropy. That's the way Andrew Lockie started off. See, this is this this TED talk that he's talking about here is about nonprofit efficiency and effectiveness that are not the same. So, when we think about philanthropy and giving, we have to first understand what are some of the factors that are influencing organizations to maybe build prison systems. Why is there a mass increase of prison systems, prisons being built instead of educational institutions? So let's look here. Give me one second. Um, So we see that um, that connection with the data shows that is it was more important for philanthropists that were investing in prisons to make a connection to the inmates. What is the industry standard that connects all of these inmates? And that was the third grade literacy level. This is said because what this means is that when we understand prisons, 
prisons are owned by private entities, private people, just individuals, right? They do consist of a board, just like any other corporation. Um, but prisons are owned by private individuals and just, you know, it's, it's privatization in prisons. And so that would mean that in order for you to continue to make money from prisons, you would need to have third graders having very low literacy levels. The problem with this is that it requires a dependence on a society of people to always have a problem with literacy levels in order for them to have sustainability in their organization, which is prisons. So for instance, you will always need poor people to be poor in order to provide for them. That's called paternalism. So there is actual, um, I have a, uh, typed in here on Google, well, not Google, but DuckDuckGo. Um, it talks about just how education versus incarceration has been. Okay. Um, this is through the American, um, the American prospect education versus incarceration. So more money must go to schools. Right. Um, says more money must go to schools than to prisons before high crime neighborhoods can truly be reformed. Well, that's at least according to the American prospect. Let's look at a different one. We see here that prisons are prisons are built as schools are closed down. This is another article. This is an article by Juan Connects that was um, written June of 2014. He talks about the crisis of the public education system is one of the many great disasters of American capitalism. And he also discusses how school, the School Reform Commission had approved budget cuts that including the layoff of 4,000 school workers and the closing of 23 public schools that was disproportionately in black working class communities. And many of these schools across the city started in 2013 and 2014. So he doesn't really um he he really tries to go into detail about how 40 different schools was closing um in 2017. So six school closings every year until 2017. So these um systematic crisis threatens the educational system. This is similar to COVID, right? Um, how it has an indirect correlation simply because you need people to be sick in order for them to get a vaccination. So if 
pharmaceutical companies rely on people to get sick in order for their business to expand that should be something that should be ethically looked at so these are three major issues right we see one which is um prisons relying on third grade education levels to generate the amount of, of prisons that need to be built we also see that um many philanthropists are relying on people to always stay poor in order to provide help to them because you need poor people to stay poor in order to help the poor right so you will need third you will need uneducated people to always remain uneducated in order to know the amount of prisons that need built, correct? So we see that there is definitely a correlation. There is a correlation between education and crime, but I'm not going to get into that today. I'm going to talk about that on a different day. Okay. Um, I just wanted to point that out because that is something that is a major issue in society um so i i can finish playing that video what i would like to do is just finish playing it that it's a few more minutes long um it shouldn't take that much longer that, that was almost three minutes so we don't have that much longer on there so let's just finish listening to andrew Lockie and how efficiency and effectiveness are not the same now i share this story because to me and i'll come around to it gets to the root of what I think needs to be the future of philanthropy, if philanthropy would like to remain relevant. Now, okay, looks like it's loading here. My own role with this is, uh, in some people's view, is a bit of a paradox. I, I have an MBA, I'm, I'm a business school graduate, but I work in the not-for-profit sector. And for a lot of people, that's kind of a paradox. Like, isn't business about for-profit, whereas uh, charity or not-for-profit or philanthropy, whatever label you want to put on it, that's about altruism. So, in other words, you know, you're, you're educated for one thing, but you're applying it to the wrong thing. I, I don't agree with that, and, and again, I'm going to circle around to that as I as I conclude. But for me, I think that the difference between the for-profit sector and the not-for-profit sector really only comes down to one fundamental thing, and that is motivation. Both the for-profit and profit sectors have very similar challenges. Both can be very successful, both can be failures. Uh, both have the potential to have really positive impact on the lives of people, and both have the ability to be fraudulent and to have devastating negative impacts on people's lives. So to me, and when I look at how I've used my business education to apply, uh, to apply myself to the not-for-profit sector, I've really thought about how the only fundamental difference between the two is that motivation. The for-profit motivation is different from the motivation of charities. Now, the, I, and I want to be clear about this because I think there is this feeling that the those that work in the charitable sector have something against the idea of profit. I actually think profit motive serves a very important role. It's, it's 
certainly been the source of all kinds of very positive human benefits. Uh, the economic uh, benefits, the, the effects that that can have on people's lives, the, the, uh, the, the historically uh, strong link between the effect that that has and, and personal freedom for people living in certain countries. Those are all very good things and I support them, but we also know that profit motive isn't enough. We also know that profit motive can leave a community with problems that it is not satisfied with. Problems like poverty, problems like uh, stigma, bias. Uh, in fact, in some cases, it's believed, as our uh, speaker before indicated, the profit motive can actually drive behaviors which are counter to public interest. And so, there is government, and they play a role, but uh, they are somewhat of a blunt instrument, if you will, in that you don't, you can't take your tax bill and designate, oh, I think I'd like to focus my taxes this year on the environment, or I'd like to focus my taxes this year on poverty. This is where charity comes in. We, with charity, have the chance to define what we want our communities to be and get involved. In this sense, charities are a building block for the way that you want your community to be. So you'll notice when I'm describing this, I'm not describing charities in terms of goodwill. I'm not describing charity in terms of good intention. I'm describing charity in a very practical, pragmatic, and in some cases, selfish way. It's what I want for my community, and charity is the vessel by which I will get there. This is a very different way to think about charity, but I really want to encourage you to start thinking of it that way. I think that uh, the charities are motivated, as I say, not by profit, of course, but they're motivated by the will to change something for what they think will be better. Okay, it's loading again. So this motive is very powerful, much like the profit motive is very powerful. But it is not, as I say, about feeling good about what you're doing, although it does feel good. Same way for a lot of people, generating a profit feels good. So this brings me around to what I wanted to really reinforce today with the time that I've got with you, and that is the notion of taking what is something that is uh, not so different from profit in terms of its operations, but very different in terms of its motive and intention, and talk to you about how I think philanthropy needs to evolve. I think it needs to evolve to a notion that focuses on effectiveness. And I want to be very clear about this. Efficiency and effectiveness are two very different things. Now that may seem very obvious to you, but let me first point out that being efficient is incredibly easy and it's, it's tempting for that reason. You can be efficient if you want. All you have to do is go out and hire a bunch of people who are poorly qualified. That's, that's generally pretty easy to do. It doesn't cost very much. Definitely don't promote yourself because that would be, make you less efficient. Um, you also don't want to invest in your infrastructure. You'd rather let that crumble because that also costs money. And presto, you're a very efficient organization. Congratulations. But you're also a very useless organization at that point. So I think it's been an interesting turn that we've seen recently, a turn that we need to divert from, where we think that to be efficient is to be effective. There was a very interesting uh, survey which I was reading about recently, a Better Business Bureau survey. It asked donors uh, 
if they thought it was important to understand how much of their money was going to the cause. And you won't be surprised to hear that lots of them thought that was important. That's a pretty common way of thinking. 78% felt that way. They also asked them, how important is it to you that you know that your donation is making a difference, that they're doing good with that money? Only 6% said they thought that was important. Now, I don't think that's because people don't actually think that's important. I think it's because they have come to believe that in the world of philanthropy, efficiency and effectiveness are the same thing. They're just not, is the short answer to the question. To be efficient is not to be effective. Efficiency is one of the ways in which you will be effective. It is not effectiveness. It is not the definition of effectiveness. Another study that, uh, that I was recently reading about on a blog on Harvard Business Review had to do with measuring that effectiveness and how do you do that. In the United States, on average, $4 is spent per year per charity on measuring effectiveness. $4. Would you want to send your kid to a school that spends $4 on measuring how effectively it's teaching those kids? It just assumes that, well, we've got this curriculum, we're teaching it. That, that looks good and feels good, but we're not going to spend any, well, sorry, we're going to spend four bucks on measuring how effective that is. You wouldn't want to send your kid to that school, and I wouldn't blame you for not wanting to send your kid to that school. It also wouldn't be appropriate if that school was wasteful. What if they had their staff washroom and a gold toilet? Well, that wouldn't be very <laughs> But the point is, both in effectiveness and access are wrong. And I think we need to move our charities in a direction whereby effectiveness is the hallmark that we look for. And efficiency is just one of the ways that we get there. I think that that would make for a sector that would engage young people in a way that it's probably not doing right now. I started this by saying that, uh, this TED talk by saying that I, I saw the future of philanthropy in a, in a certain and specific way, but I also see a role for you. And I think the role that I'd like to see you guys play in the community is to Go to charities with this message of effectiveness and say, I'm not interested as much in how efficient you are. I think efficiency is a way that you are going to chart a course to what's really important for me. And that's making a difference. And that is actually measuring your impact in the community. I think once you do that, you'll see charities lining up to show you and make the investment that they need to make to show that they are getting the job done. Thank you very much. So I really, really am inspired by Andrew Lockie's reflection on efficiency and effectiveness. So a couple of different things that he talks about um, that I like to address is the success and failure are directly correlated with for-profit organizations and also non-profit organizations. They all have the ability to be successful and they all can fail. They can have positive or negative impact. They can also have fraudulent impact as well. So he talked about really just having the motivation. So you have this for-profit motivation. And then you have this charity sector type of motivation. And so when we understand that for-profit organizations could sometimes really avoid addressing poverty, stigma biases right because they're profit center on and sometimes they could even disrupt public interest altogether right so when we think about philanthropy it starts with philanthropy everybody 
This is the main issue. Philanthropy, non-government organizations, NGOs, right? So it's nothing wrong with people wanting to be able to provide a service in the world, right? Who doesn't want to give? Many organizations, many nonprofit organizations are formed on the premise that they want to help. But many of them are not effective. They're just being efficient. So I agree with Andrew Lockie's notion on philanthropy should be changed in a way where it produces effectiveness. But I believe in addition to that, that there should be effectiveness and also accountability. So these nonprofit organizations that are within a certain zip code, they should be responsible for their zip code. They should be responsible for providing services for individuals within their zip code, within their region, within their district. And they should have some form of accountability about how their programs are being effective in the community that they're located in. I mean, if your organization can be situated, geographically located in a zip code, why aren't you providing all of your services to those community members? Why would a nonprofit organization not be servicing the region that they live, that they are residing. So if you live in a community, the people who live in their community would be the best people who would know what their community needs. For instance, I grew up on the low end of Chicago. I know what everything Inglewood needs everything that the people in the projects needed, everything on the low end from, from 39th to 55th. All the way down from, from 55th all the way down to 71st. Okay? We talking about the entire South Side here, okay? So when you live in a community, you know what your community needs. For instance, we know that in Chicago Southside that there are um, a high rate of student to teacher ratio. On average, it's about 35 students to one teacher. One teacher's aide is about 12, between 10 and 15 students. That's the problem. The, another main issue in Chicago public schools is there are no libraries in the schools. The infrastructure is all out of whack. So students can't really focus on their classwork because maybe the heat is off or the air conditioning isn't working. So they, they can't use the bathroom maybe because the, the, you know, the toilets don't have tissue. The restrooms don't have tissue. The infrastructure is all out of whack. It, it influences the learning environment. This is just only a couple of issues within the, the academic setting in Chicago Southside. And that's one place specifically. So that's 
my ability to understand that is because I grew up on Chicago South Side. <laughs> and I understand what it needs. I know what the community needs. I live there. My grandparents live there. My parents live there. So this issue is that philanthropists, they should be required to receive funds by helping communities that they are geographically located in. And they should also extend that service once their community have been um, helped, you know, but mainly helping individuals should be based upon community members. Every single community member know what their community needs. You have a hierarchy system. For instance, when you have community policing in rural areas, suburbia, everyone loves seeing the police because it's suburbia. The crime rate is low. But if community policing is so strong in the metro cities, the urban communities, they're not going to be perceived as, you know, like welcoming. Because there's this distrust between community members and community policing. So the perception of community policing in suburbia is going to differentiate from the perception of community policing in urban communities. This issue is mainly due to the lack of participant or lack of participation. So if if it requires philanthropists to intervene in communities in order to combat poverty, stigma, biases, including public interests, then nonprofit organizations, including for-profit organizations, should require a certain level of civic engagement, community engagement, in order to be allocated with a certain amount of funds. So the efficiency and effectiveness is two different things. It really is, okay? Um, a company, they can, I, I watched people breeze through college not asking one single question. I mean, multiple classes, literally, throughout college. They don't ask nothing, no question, okay? And they just go through school, you know, with pretty much no engagement. That's efficiency. You can get through school by not asking a bunch of questions. Don't have too much engagement. Go sit back and chill and just... Listen to everything. Don't ask the question. That's efficient. They're going to graduate. They're still going to pass. They're going to get through it. But in order to be effective as a school, 
you want to make sure that you have students that comprehend the work. That once they leave this classroom, they can go out and teach somebody else about it. They should be able to go out and implement the skills that was learned in the classroom. How many of your students can come back and, and teach a class on this issue? That's called effectiveness. So are you just being efficient or are you being effective? So I don't want to like, for instance, nobody wants to have just an efficient marriage, right? You want to have an effective marriage where your, your spouse is communicating with you. You don't want someone who, who, who is, um, has confirmation or conformity bias. They don't, they're so afraid to speak to you about anything. It's like, okay, well, I'm not going to say anything to him today. Or I'm not going to say anything to her today. Don't want to be judged for standing up for an idea. Or I'm not going to ask that question. That's a stupid question. See, that's the problem. There's a problem with being efficient and being effective. Do you want to have a marriage where you can communicate with your spouse, identify and acknowledge what the problem is, and after that, probe and implement solutions? Make compromise, negotiation practices. So, you know, this is important. This is, this is very important to understand, okay? And I like being able to explain things where everyone can understand. Because like Albert Einstein, even though he plagiarized the Bible, okay, um, in many of his quotes, all right, he did make one valid point that I always kind of resonate with. And then he says, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it. So it's important for me to be able to not just be efficient, but be effective. And who cares about what anybody thinks? It's all about you doing the plan, will, and purpose that God has put before you. So I wanted to look at this other scripture and I'm going to end tonight on that. So this scripture is um, in, let's see, Galatians 4 and 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We are heirs of God. That means that we are his chosen children. We are his children. We are heirs through God. And in order to understand your position, you need to understand that you are an heir of God. Okay? So let's look. I want to look that up in the... um. In, that's Galatians 4 and 7. Okay. Galatians 4 and 7. I want to look up the King James Bible for that. So we can look up this 
in the Strong's Concordance. Okay, so we are heirs of God. So let's look up the word heir in the Strong's Concordance. So that way we won't um have any confusion as to what that means. Okay. I knew it was going to, I messed up with this one second. So it says the word air is Strong's number 2818, which is pronounced Clayronimus. And it means reflexively getting by appointment, a sharer by lots, inheritor. So we inherit everything that we need through God. Right, we sh we are a sharer of God's kingdom. So don't forget that you are an heir of God. I am an heir of God. Know your position and stick with that. So today was just about understanding philanthropy and how it really impacts recidivism. And we're gonna dive really deep on this topic, okay? Um, but let me go ahead and pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for giving us your word today. Thank you for giving us the ability to understand what is going on in society so that we can be partakers in making change and disrupting cultural norms. God, we just ask that you allow us to be bold and fearless in this world and fearing you only, God. We thank you that greater is the Holy Spirit inside of us than the spirit that, in this, is, that is in this world. And God, we thank you that we dominate in every space through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so God, we thank you that you allow us to fulfill your plan, will, and purpose. But most importantly, God, please allow your will to be done. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we ask that you will meet our needs according to your riches and glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, it is sealed in your blood. Amen. Okay. Thank you all so much for joining me tonight. I will see you all tomorrow. If you need to send in a prayer request, please do so at Laws Life Help at SuddenChangesCorporation.org. Thank you so much for joining me. I will see you all tomorrow. Have a good night.